Hi, it's Candy Raquel, founder of Centro de Poder. Welcome to the Sensual Sessions, the place to be to sense your fire so you can share your flame. And today we have a very special guest. This is Steve James. Welcome, Steve. So happy to have you here. Oh, thank you, Candia. Thank you for inviting me. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do and why you do it? Yeah, sure. Well, what I usually what I say depends on who I'm talking to, generally speaking. But at the most, we could say that um, I have a podcast, Guru Viking Podcast, which is I think you've seen some episodes you were telling me before. And in that podcast, I interview all kinds of people involved in things like meditation, spirituality, uh, this sort of thing, scholars, practitioners, of uh, uh, translators, all kinds of interesting people who kind of associated in some way or another with that idea, professors of religion, etc. also philosophers and things. So this is the Guru Viking podcast. And, you know, I also um, work with one on one work one on one with uh, clients and teach workshops, etc. A lot of that workshop work is done with Michaela Bohm, who's a uh, renowned relationship counselor. And we teach together. Yeah, we do teach about relationships. Uh, do workshops around that. We talk, talk about embodiment. We talk about, yeah, sure, I teach meditation as well, uh, trauma, things of that nature. So these are the subjects, the intersection of embodiment, relationship, you know, etc, uh, etc, et meditation. So I do a lot of things, actually, which is why I usually tailor it to whoever I'm talking to. But that's a very quick overview. I, I appreciate that custom made description of what you're doing. So I've heard some of your episodes that uh, include shamanism and even witchcraft. Very interesting. So I wanted to ask you if if you're a magician, do you have superpowers? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm what what no? they call in Harry Potter a muggle. You know, yeah. in Harry Potter, you've got the magical people, the wizards, and you have muggles. Muggles are non-magical people. Yeah, no, I'm not. Actually, um, I interview, it's true, sometimes people also about the occult, uh, things of that nature, because there's actually quite an overlap. Sometimes people think, well, there's meditation and enlightenment, and then over here is magical powers. Actually, in the most of the traditions, religious traditions that you could think of, including Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, there's a lot of miracles and magical powers that are um, referred to. Um, so I don't know if it's, you know, I don't, I, I don't have any magical powers. I have not seen any either, but um, it does come up. And so sometimes I talk to people about that, but some people get confused and they think because I'm interviewing somebody who is magical, claims to have magical powers, then I must also be magical. Or because I'm interviewing somebody who claims to be enlightened and I have interviewed people who claim to be enlightened, then that means I must be enlightened because you see us both on the screen and people think, uh -huh. ah, you must also be, yeah. But it's actually not true. <laughs> I'm not enlightened. I don't have magical powers. Yeah. You're not enlightened factually no, or I'm so not. far? Maybe you're on the uh, way to getting enlightened, no? Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe that would be accidental though. I'm not trying to get enlightened. Um, I'm not enlightened and I'm not trying to get enlightened, but of course, I'm not even sure what enlightenment is. Um, 
you know, it's described in so many different ways, even sometimes within the same tradition. So enlightenment often, I think, is associated with Buddhism in particular. Yes. And but even in Buddhism, they have a lot of arguments and disagreements about what is enlightenment, etc., etc. So, you know, people have their own view of what enlightenment is, and they many of the people I've interviewed who claim to be enlightenment, enlightened describe their enlightenment differently. But anyway, so I'm not sure. Maybe it certainly exists as an ideal. The ideal of enlightenment is, of course, does exist because it's a concept we can talk about. But is it possible for a person to attain enlightenment? And if so, which enlightenment? I don't know. But anyway, um, I I'm not attempting to become enlightened myself, no. <laughs> Yeah, we should have a menu of the enlightenment options to choose which one. And perhaps it's more like worthwhile to, to get enlightenment without even trying. Like, like you know, Jimi Hendrix, that he, he couldn't read music, but how he played, like, wow, amazing. And about magical powers and mysticism and the factuality of what we know for sure scientifically also overlaps. As we know, chemistry came from alchemy. And, and still, like, you, you go into the NASA website and the constellations are Gemini, like you, that was your birthday a few days ago. And we have all, all the constellations that have, like, a... Um, yeah, a, a mystical background because that was like a primal way to relate and interpret the universe for us humans. And even now, like, I, I think it's nice not to lose like the magical thinking at all, as long as you know, like, okay, well, enlightenment, what kind of enlightenment? And maybe ask yourself, what is it about? So. What, what made you interested on researching these topics of mysticism and also relationships and polarity? Mm. Well, um, both of them, I think, perhaps similar. They are, of course, a very fascinating parts of life that one can't really avoid. And so encountering them, I became fascinated by them in both cases. That's the short version. Of course, how did I encounter them? Well, when I was young in the Shetland Islands, a small island off the northern coast of Scotland, I had two influences very early, which um, I don't know if they inspired an interest or if I already had the interest, but they gave a shape to it. I'm not sure which is which, chicken or egg. But um, I was an altar boy, uh, but without doctrine. So I was participating in the ritual of the Catholic mass, ca carrying candles and ringing bells and so on. But my mother would not let us, my brother and I, go to the doctrinal lessons. Mm -hmm. She believed that the religion was best practiced as a sort of private faith, uh, using the ritual as a time for contemplation, the mass, which is like the ritual or puja of Catholicism. So she did not want us to be to indoctrinated into the um, tenets of the faith. So we didn't go to that class. So it was very open, uh, ritualistic kind of thing. And I had some, I found that very uh, profound. Uh, and at five years old, I began doing that. So I found that very profound. And also at, at that same age, I'd started training in martial arts. Uh, 
doing karate. Yeah. And so that I also loved that I fell in love with that. And we would meditate a bit in that class and hold the punches to t train our character and our inner strength, mental strength. Yeah, like, just like that. And so from there, I read lots of things about martial arts. And then from there, I read lots of things about Japanese religion, uh, Zen, and then Buddhism, and then Hinduism, and then Taoism, and then all the other things like this rippling out. So those are the two roots of of the uh, mystic mysticism um, and religious, if you want, research interests. Yeah. Wonderful. And how mm -hmm. do you apply that on your everyday life? Like, for example, to drink coffee or go to work. Oh. <laughs> or I, I don't know, do you iron your clothes? Um, no, I don't often iron my clothes unless I have to go to some uh, formal, you know, meeting uh, event or maybe a premiere or a Premier. party where people are dressing nicely. Then, yeah, of course, I iron my clothes then, but not when I'm just hanging around the boat. Yeah. Well, how do you apply all that to hang around the boat? Like how? Yeah. Is it? Is it useful for the everyday things? Well, or how yes. is how is it useful? I, I would say, like for going to the supermarket hmm. and talking with with your aunt that likes to gossip about the family on the family media, like like for the everyday life <laughs> that makes most of the existence that is tedious, like because. Wow, Taoism and and the discipline and character building of martial arts and everything. But when you go to the family reunions, like <laughs> how how does the sublime and subtle practices apply to the to the ever changing um, environment? on the everyday life, when you don't have the contention of being um, at the classroom or or at the church or at the tatami, like, yeah, ha, ha, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's not possible. Or is it for you? Yes, I, that's a very interesting question, I think. And uh, we could perhaps answer it on a couple of different levels. Um, on the one hand, maybe the yes, on the simple level first, these sorts of practices to me, and of course, we're talking about myself, right? Or do you want me to talk more generally? Talk about whatever you want, however you want. Okay, fine. Well, for myself, these practices are uh, fundamentally investigations of um, experience. So if one is meditating, then yeah, then there's the mind, there's thinking, there's the body, there's sound. So these are experiences. So, uh, and so investigating that uh, has many interesting uh, results or possible results. One of them is you can begin to understand a little bit more how you work inside. Going always from activity to activity, 
sometimes it's easy to miss the things that drive us, the, the patterns of thought and emotion. So sometimes I find that taking the time to stop and meditate, which is one of my favorite um, practical, uh, practical activities related to this interest is meditation. Then I find that I begin to understand a little bit more about myself. And therefore, um, when I'm in relationship with the world, um, I'm a little bit more clear about myself and who I am and, and why I um, act or react certain ways. But also, that's one level, kind of practical. And I could give you many examples of those understandings that are more specific. But, um, well, one perhaps would be uh, sometimes uh, there is something going on which is unpleasant in my environment or in my body. Like I have a pain in the body or an auntie, right? <laughs> like you said. Right, that I that isn't annoying me because of the gossiping, like you said. Okay, that's a good example. So there's the thing that's happening, and then there's the reaction inside. And one of the things you notice in meditation, or I think, is that uh, our experience is made up of, let's just say, pain in the body, the pain of the the, the pain, the sensation, and the reaction. Yeah. And those two things, they, we experience them as the same thing. So when you notice that there's a certain degree to which yeah, there is pain. So we're not saying that there's no pain. The auntie is still there, but there's, so that's one thing, but there's a sense in which we contribute from mm -hmm. our own side, reactivity, thoughts, uh, judgments, etc., various kinds that mix with the thing, the pain or the auntie in our experience and create the suffering. So one of the things you can learn in meditation is to untangle mm -hmm. the reactivity, or at least understand that there's a difference between the thing and the reaction. That's what I could give you many other examples, but that's one. So then when you react, um, you do not think it's auntie. You recognize, yeah, auntie is gossiping, but also I'm reacting. Mm -hmm. so there's two things going on here. You can't do much about auntie gossiping. I mean, maybe you can tell her to stop, but she just starts again five minutes later. Yeah. So, you know, so you can't, you know, sometimes you can change the situation for the better and sometimes you can't, but you can always do something about the reactivity. So that's one thing. But on the on maybe another level, one of the things that I've noticed in meditation is a kind of falling in love more and more with mundane fact of experience, mm -hmm. a kind of falling in love with exper uh, experience or uh, life or being. And that when you fall in love with anybody or anything, as you know, uh, it makes things easier to deal with. If you're in love and auntie is complaining, in a way, it's okay because you're full of love for, you know, for your partner or your new partner, right? It's, it's not so, such a big deal. So I think there's also something to be said for that, to begin to see, you know, when you're full of the love for your recently um, acquired partner, you look at your auntie and say, well, yeah, she's complaining, but she's not so bad. Oh, actually, she's kind of beautiful in a way. Oh, isn't it interesting? Oh, you know, I will not always have auntie here. So you see more of the positives as well as the negatives. So I think something like that too. So there's insights that come from the practice, uh, maybe even biological changes like more less stress and so on. Okay, that's one level. But the other level is a kind of more of a beginning to fall in love with the mundane so that even mundane things become somewhat, um, become more and more beautiful, you know. Yeah, falling in love with the mundane and make the making them part of 
your research of the experience and then you become like a, an active participant on the creation, not only the, the recipient of the experience, but an active participator and creator of what's going on. Because in any relationship, like the, the gossiping aunt and you, or, or your shirt and ironing and practicing something super boring, there, there's like two parts and something else happened when they come together, like a third thing called the outcome or the relation or in systems, com in complex system science, the emergent properties that were, or alchemy, that thing that was not available when the components were apart. And you mentioned something interesting that, uh, about the suffering and dealing with unpleasant situations and how can this awareness and this self-knowledge through untangling can, can provide like modulation for the experience. So that was in regards to the unpleasant experience. So tell me more now about pleasure. Do you find pleasure on sitting and meditating, like just being there? Is it pleasurable? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. And, and where do you feel the pleasure? Yeah, meditation I find very pleasurable or blissful, even when it's unpleasant. How come? <laughs> so well, it's pleasurable when it's unpleasant, but it's not painful? Yeah, exactly. So it's a little bit like, uh, I think there are relatable examples uh, that are outside of meditation, but yes, so I'll perhaps give one of those. But yes, I find um, it's very enjoyable. Uh, but there are certain meditations where one deliberately steers towards states of bliss or transcendence. And I don't know, usually, I mean, I sometimes do that, but the, I have practiced those techniques, but I don't do them much in my daily practice. Mostly it's more or less unvarnished contact with um, experience. And there's something intrinsically uh, blissful about that, I find. And it's not to do with whether the sensation is good or bad, because that's a separate, that's another level of, of uh, hedonic valence. But there seems to be something intrinsically blissful about just, just being, uh, it seems to me. But, uh, you know, that, that's my own personal feeling you asked me if I have pleasure in meditation mm -hmm. but yeah so sometimes it's it's tough you know sometimes you meditate and you um, I'm upset or I feel anxious or sad or have negative emotions as we might call them or stress you know stress in the body and so on or maybe there's pain in the body maybe my back hurts or I have a headache or something like that okay so that that is still there but um, uh, nonetheless or sometimes I feel happy and cheerful in my meditation, but you know, sometimes that just sort of eventually fades as well. So uh, those sort of transient, good or bad, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that happens, of course, but behind it or in between it, or mm -hmm. even the stuff that all that is made of seems to be um, bliss, but not bliss like checked out bliss, you know, wriggling with bliss, eyes rolled back in a different dimension bliss, but ordinary, yes. just being here, just 
breathing this air, feeling this body, hearing these sounds, that kind of bliss in that. So it's not bliss somewhere else that you get to when you become very good meditator. It's the bliss that is revealed in everything. But that seems to be the case. So when you meditate, right, it's a luxury to meditate, I think, because I, I can sit here on my boat and I can just meditate quietly. Nobody is attacking me. I'm not in danger here, uh, immediate danger, for example, like being in a war or in a terrible living situation. So my life is quite peaceful. So I just meditate and it's like a luxury holiday in a way, but a holiday into life. The problem um, comes for me more when I'm so busy, I'm so busy that um, I forget that I'm here or something like that. But anyway, yes. Uh, where, does, where, where do I feel the pleasure? But yes, in the body, sometimes it's a, a glowing in the chest or it goes down the arms into the hands. So the body becomes full of a pleasant, blissful feeling. Sometimes it's in the throat, coming into face in a smile. Um, yeah, sometimes it's in the in the mind or the head, a kind of um, opening of pleasantness. Mm -hmm. But I think these are sensations that everybody experiences sometimes. Yeah. Uh, maybe when uh, having a nice walk in nature or waking up in the morning and you don't have to get up right away. And there's a moment of of that or maybe just going to sleep a moment of right before right between awake and asleep. Maybe there's a moment there of blissfulness or maybe having um, sex with somebody you like a lot or love um, in a nice way. Sometimes I think there also can be a moment where you you become absorbed in it to such an extent that it, it sort of intrinsically feels good. There's something intrinsically good about it. So I think there or maybe having a cup of coffee in the morning, that first cup of coffee. Oh, my goodness. You pick up the coffee and then you start to drink and it's it's before the coffee has even hit your mouth you're already enjoying the coffee. So I think all these sorts of things, you know, maybe are little hints of what I'm talking about. But anyway, now I sound, I hope I don't sound like uh, it's something lofty or a high attainment, not at all. You're just asking me about my own meditation. Yeah. If I feel pleasure, I say, yes, I do. Yeah, and it's wonderful that you mentioned it's not lofty or high attainment as enlightenment, <laughs> as, as it's sold right. as enlightenment. But in a way, it's also part of the entangling or, or the findings on your research of experience through untangling that experience through meditation. And I wonder, like, from your standpoint, being a guy, yeah, you're a man, no? Yeah, I think so. Last yeah. time I checked. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's it's nice to to listen how you describe your experience of pleasure bodily, and it's not something that I usually listen guys express with that freedom. Um, and well, I have friends, but I don't talk much about pleasure or how it. Is it for them to, to have a good time besides beer and football? And it, that made me think that societally, there is not much space for men or 
manhood or manly people to to get in touch to the sensations of bliss, physical bliss, neither for expressing them as if there was a necessary justification or an appropriate context and also like something graspable that is like, no, I am feeling good because my team won. And even on the social discourse, I don't, I don't hear often what you have just said. So why do you think is that? Did you struggle experiencing talking about pleasure or have you noticed like these uh, maybe difficulty for men to tap into their own pleasure or express it? Hmm. You know, I don't, uh, I think I can, I, I can do it easily because I'm talking about my own meditation practice. So it's something that I'm very familiar with. Um, and I know what you're asking when you ask me, how do I experience pleasure? Uh, you're not asking me why, you're asking me how. Meaning, I interpreted it to, to uh, you're asking me to describe I, I the bodily experience of pleasure. Yeah, I ask you where, where? and you say, right. well, that's even more precise. Yeah, that's yeah. even more precise. So then I'm directed to locations because of the word where, um, you know, and I think probably uh, some that's an unusual question to ask most people. And so maybe it takes people a little while to um, think, what do you mean where? Well, like, you know, where do you feel it in your body? You know, and you feel when I feel anxious, you know, some people feel anxious in the chest or they feel angry as a heat in the face and they're kind of pricking up the back of blood flow. Okay. So what, and then the person may say, oh yeah, uh, right. Well, yeah, when I feel anxiety, it's like a lump in my chest or yeah, that's right. When I feel happy, it's kind of like, it fills my chest and my body, you know? So, and then when you meditate a lot, of course, you see all those emotions and experiences occurring you without much else going on. So you have more chance to um, understand them and get to know them. So it's easier, therefore, to re uh, recount them. That precision of sensory clarity, I think, is some people just have it, but it's also something that naturally develops in meditation, I think, for most people. But I, actually, in terms of accessing pleasure, one of the reasons that people have difficulty, I think, there are many different reasons, and this is true, I think, equally for men and women, is that uh, because a lot of women are, have tr trouble also accessing pleasure, uh, difficulty with libido or just joie de vivre in general. Uh, uh, that is the case. Um, and also, yes, you're right, men too. So there's a few reasons, I think. For example, habitually, um, if in life, if you're always in the head, working on the computer, going around from thing to thing in a kind of go mode, right? Michaela sometimes calls that go mode. Go, 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 get it done, get it done. It's an important mode. But if one is in that mode all the time, you get used to being in that mode. And then at the end of the day, you it's hard to relax. A lot of people don't know how to switch from go mode to what we could say flow mode, like more relaxed, more in feeling your body, more open to pleasure or relationship or whatever the case may be. So people have difficulty with that gear shift because go mode, we do it so much that we become habituated to it. 
that's one reason. So at the lightest level, we're just habituated to go, 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 go. And so therefore, we have to make a deliberate effort often to let go of that and relax. So that's one thing. Um, then another thing, though, is that when you relax, you're going to feel what's there to be felt. So if you connect with your body, you're going to feel what's there to be felt. Okay, sometimes it feels good, but sometimes it doesn't. A lot of times you feel you feel the stress in your body from the day. You feel the fatigue in your body from the day. So we could call that temporal, like recent, fresh stress or negative emotion from the day. So if you relax, you're going to feel that. So sometimes it's hard to navigate that or people do not want to feel that. So we turn the attention away to other activities in order to relax without having to feel. So that's one thing. How can we navigate that layer of fresh stress into a relaxed state? Sometimes that, you know, pe people know how to do it, but sometimes they don't always do it. Like some people go for a walk, you know, some people work out, some people meditate, some people, uh, wrestle with their kids or whatever so people have different strategies but there are ways to do that but then maybe another level below that is trauma historical traumas sometimes people who are traumatized through maybe a difficult childhood or uh, war trauma or different kind of things like that or difficult uh, circumstances of life that have traumatized them um, it's also very difficult for them to connect to the body sometimes because it hurts because it's painful the emotions are painful the body is painful so it's it's uh, that is another thing so sometimes people who think it's good to feel the body they promote embodiment or pleasure or whatever thrust people into their feelings thinking well it's always good to feel it's always good to feel well that's not always the case so for those people who have traumas sometimes a third party assistance is required, like a, a trauma therapist, or working with somebody who knows about trauma and can nav help help slowly at the pace of the person's own body, um, begin to uh, thaw those feelings and work with them to a degree. So there is hope if there, if you are traumatized, there is hope for that. But of course, that's another reason. So I've given three reasons, habitual, go-go-go um, mode, and uh, second reason is just temporal stress of the day. It's not trauma, but it's just kind of stress stress of the day and emotions and things. Ah, oh, don't want to feel that. I'm already tired. I don't want to have to deal with that. So then the third one is perhaps more longstanding trauma. Those are three reasons why people in general have difficulty accessing feeling. And feeling is the place where pleasure happens. So it's not only the place where pain happens. It's also the place where pleasure happens. But you can't have both. You can't have one without the other. If you open your faculty of feeling, you're opening to both pleasure and pain. Yeah, yeah. You, you need to have something inside of you in order to sustain like the fullness of experience, even in its contradiction. And regarding yeah. the flow goal, is it relaxation a requirement for pleasure? It depends what we mean by relaxation there's a balance between relaxation and uh, we could say tension or we could say activation, something like that. There's a balance. And uh, sometimes 
people fetishize relaxation. Always relaxation is good. Always more relaxation is better. But of course, that's not the case. We need relaxation and we need activation. We need the parasympathetic and the sympathetic. We need stress, actually, as well as we need rest. Both of them are essential in a homeostasis. The, the problem is that a lot of us are more in our lives. It's required of us, of course, to be more in the go mode. And so there's a lot of stresses and so on. So for most people, but not everybody, um, learning to relax or deliberately relaxing is the thing that needs to happen. But that's not because relaxing is better than uh, relaxed is better than, than than stressed or active. It's just because mostly we're stressed and active. <laughs> so, you know, but there's a kind of balance I think is needed. And that's certainly true for the erotic response or pleasure in general. There has to be excitement, excitation, as well as relaxation. Relaxation opens the possibility for feeling, but without excitation, without the um, yeah, aggravation of, of uh, energies, if you want, or aggravation of sensation and dynamics of so on, then, then there's no current through the system. So it seems that for pleasure, there needs to be a kind of both. Yeah, but most people, the difficulty is too tense. Being I can't feel pleasure, you know, well, usually it's too tense, too stressed, and then you have to relax. And then when you've begun to a little bit relax, then you need to reintroduce stimulation of various kinds of a pleasurable. I don't mean necessarily physical stimulation, but then you need to get the system moving and flowing again. So sometimes tense and stress becomes um, frozen. So you, first of all, you've got to relax a little bit, but then at the same time, you also have to stimulate the system. So it seems that you need both. Yeah, to restore the homeostasis, maybe if you're already stuck into stress and being tense because of your way of doing, dealing with yourself and your world, then you will need to relax in order to put things in place so you can like aggravate back into eroticness and pleasure. And in this image of go versus flow, um, at, on the beginning when you just mentioned, I thought like, oh, okay, flow, like floating in the Caribbean in Tulum and doing nothing like that kind of flow. And the go like, I don't know, like, like Hussein Bolt sprinting <laughs> on the Oly Olympic games. But um, now I get a different sense, like thinking, for example, on a jaguar, hunting, and using the, their ability at their fullest for survival. In the same way, they use their full abilities for mating. And how you can see on, on the pleasure on, on the wilderness and the animals, you can see that pleasure and aliveness that is not necessarily passive always. So it made me think of a going flow, like, like those modalities, like not just um, letting yourself go, but at the same time going in the way that you need both in order to 
create a synergy to the ever-changing environment if you want to come forth into the edge of the now. So in my opinion. So now I want to ask you about the pleasure in martial arts, like you're a martial artist and you have been in combat. So how is that experience of pleasure? Not only like the steady pleasure of what you feel in meditation, or maybe if you like piña coladas or margaritas in the beach, that's also pleasure. But how is it for you? How? And also, also tell us where, <laughs> because you already said that standard of specificity in pleasure. When, mm. when in the challenge, when dealing with the unexpected, because you, you never know how your enemy will react and you don't know how you will react or respond to that reaction. And in that way, it's, it's the same thing that happen, happens at a board meeting or crossing the street or talking with your auntie. Yeah, well, I should say, I should clarify that I've never been in combat. Never? Combat to me, well, no, combat to me means, um, Like, a, like being a soldier in a war or, an, uh, you know, a firefight or this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I have many friends who've done that and been in combat like that, and I have not done that. So that's one thing to say, but I have engaged in competition. Mm -hmm. um, well, yeah, so of martial arts and things. Yeah. yeah, so, right. So I wouldn't, I mean, I suppose that's combat in a way, but it's not, I would differentiate that kind of sport combat from in combat, life, which is combat. yeah like right. that's another kettle of fish yeah. and that's yeah. that's something else you know. like you so but then again, of course right yeah and then of course there's combat of conflict in everyday life but i i tend to think of combat as, mil as a military thing but that's just my association i think you you've used it correctly the word I but um I, I wouldn't like to equate what I've done with 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 people in the soldiers and so on. But yeah, I have done those things. And um, in a competition situation, what is the what is the pleasure of in that? Well, there's there's pleasure in training. Yeah, there's pleasure in competition. That's right. The pleasure is let's think or enjoyment maybe is another way of saying it. Enjoyment. Do you is enjoyment okay to say, or do you mean literal bodily pleasure? Yeah, it has a different tone because enjoyment, like, well, you can enjoy a chocolate, but you can also feel like you can have an essential experience with chocolate or with like, like sense, like uh, with pleasure. I mean, like this experience in the flesh and in the senses that is pleasurable. I think. Right. Yeah. Well, I would say, yes. Well, I'm trying to remember now moments like that. I think in in certain sports, uh, I've done, as I said, karate and sports like that, but I've also done Western fencing and I competed in that to a fairly high level. So in both of those, there is a pleasure in the ritual of um, preparation or all the rituals in general. So you put on each of those 
uh, activities has a uniform, you could say, right? Of course, with fencing, you have the big mask and the jacket and the under thing and the breeches. And so, so you put all these things on. Um, there's something um, ple pleasurable about, about, about that ritual, I think. There's, and the same with karate, for example, you put on the gi, there's something pleasurable about it because your mind is shifting into the mode of the activity. There's something nice about that. As you put on the uniform, you, your mind is gathered from all the places it is, the past, the future, uh, other locations, and it comes, all the parts of the mind start to come together mm -hmm. into the activity that you're doing. So I think that's something pleasurable about that. Um, and then, of course, you begin the sport. And there's another pleasure which comes from uh, a high degree of competency in movement. So in karate, for instance, we do preordained sequences. It's part of karate training. They have kion, which are the basics. Mm -hmm. And then you put these together into kata, which are like choreographed sequences of moves, which are sort of a zip file of the particular lineage of martial arts. So yeah, you do that. And I, I, we, you do it again and again, and you do it for many years. So I recall experiences with, with the you know, with senior people in this, in the small club that I was a part of, which was, it took it very seriously. We would do the kata together and we'd all move in kind of together and not because we were looking, but because you get into a kind of a group consciousness and your mind just goes away or becomes very quiet. And there's just the movements just the activities. So just that by itself is nice. But then when you do it with a small group of people who you've trained with for many years, and all of you are performing that, it's, um, and there's nobody watching. It's just private, a private, intimate experience of training. There's something I think very, um, very profound about that, that's, I think is pleasurable. And of course, in competition, the thrill of the kill, that's always fun too. The standing there with the sword in Western fencing, for example, the rhythm of the body, your actions are well rehearsed, ingrained. The strategy is non-conceptual. So you're not thinking, you're feeling your strategy. Yes. So it never comes to the point of thought because that's too slow. So it's a thoughtless maneuvering and then dynamic action, spontaneity with the thrill of the kill because you stab the person. Of course, it's not going to kill them. I don't think it's fun if you're killing people, but it's a it's a game, right? That's why it's not real combat. But there's a little button on the end which compresses when you hit them, and it a little light goes off, and it says you got them, right? Or if you're slashing, then it's different. But anyway, uh, that thrill of the kill is also, I think, uh, pleasurable and addictive. Pleasurable and addictive. It it sounds yeah. like the feeling of winning. Well, winning is another thing. Yeah, it's the it's the feeling of um, it's the feeling of opposition and competition, and uh, yeah, it's the feeling of it's a feeling of yeah opposition and competition. Uh, that feeling is very pleasurable. Winning is another thing. Winning is good, losing is bad. But I'm talking about something that's more process based. I think whether you win or lose, it does. It's it, it, it winning or losing doesn't take away the pleasure of doing it. But of course, it's better to win. You know, it's much better to win than lose. In these <laughs> people say, "Oh, it's okay. I will learn something." Yeah, okay, sure. But really, 
It's much better when you win. Yeah, of course, because <laughs> when you lose, you learn what not to do in order not to lose. So what you're saying... Well, you learn that the other one is... You, you, you learn that the other guy is better than you in that moment. That's what you learn in that fundamentally. Moment. In that moment. Yeah, and that's, that's exciting. It's exciting to be in a situation where there's an ambig you can ambiguously feel the limits of your capability in, in opposition to a resisting opponent. I think this is um, this is this is pleasurable, clarifying, um, relaxing, liberating, uh, because all that exists is that competition that you know between the two of you. That's all there is, and it's a simple act with sim with predefined rules, and then you just test your physical and mental prowess as well as the quality of your training as well as pit pitting your genetics against the genetics of the other person, all this comes into play, as well as your psychology and your mental toughness, as well as your mind games, the psychology of competition is very important, etc, etc. Uh, so you've, you're pitting all of this against the other one within a controlled, so, so to say safe, uh, simulated, you know, competition situation, and it's, uh, it's extremely uh, wonderful. Yes, the, the ability to be aware in the now. What you said made me, made me see a great relevance on the ritual, on the preparation towards these uh, situations of antagonism. In the best case and safer case, a competition, which has rules, and and you know what you're exactly doing to get exactly uh, that ob objective and etc. And yeah, it works for competition and makes me feel that that's key for everyday life, like how you prepare for the day, where even though you have everything scheduled there will always be something extra, something unexpected, or even your own mood will, can change and affect the situation. So the ritual is a great way to set, to set yourself for, for the occasion, to, to be ready for, for what's coming and have a set disposition to experience what the competition board meeting life, the day itself will bring you from a pleasure stance. Because when we deal with the unexpected, often we tend to, to freeze, like to, to get into survival mode, unless you get into panther mode <laughs> and you can dance with the unexpected and find pleasure in that. So when you work with your students and clients, male students and male clients, what is the biggest challenge uh, they often face when connecting with the way of doing in that has pleasure imprinted on it?
Well, that's an interesting question. What are what is the biggest challenge of you're specifically asking for my male clients? Yes, guys. Mm-hmm. Guys regard in regards to experiencing their own pleasure. Because hardness, suffering, even martyrdom, uh-huh. those those are discourses that are often heard and spoken, but the discourses of wow delicious how i feel my arm moving (laughs) i see (laughs) right 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 okay yeah now i understand well uh, in addition to the things that i mentioned before like being um always in the go mode um and not knowing maybe how to de-escalate into a more relaxed place so that's but i will add something specific maybe for for men but and then the other thing i said was just stress you know having a lot of stress, don't want to feel not don't know how to work with that to get get through it, temporal stress and also traumas. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people who are traumatized, including men. And um, so that can sometimes be difficult. Yeah, but but, but what, uh, what kind of stress, like yeah. what, what situation often men struggle that make makes them stressed? Like, can you can you give us more specific details? Mm-hmm. Or what kind of trauma, like, like from from all the menu of problems that men have, <laughs> mm-hmm. from being always in go mode or stressed or traumatized, what is like a main issue? Mm. Well, I don't think that there are many main issues in terms of categories that men face that are you, that are unfamiliar to women uh i'm talking about categories categories of trauma or stress childhood trauma and stress maybe you know childhood trauma and stresses you know wars toxic uh relationships whether in home or with others outside of the home etc etc all this sort of thing you know traumas um surgical traumas physical accidents seeing terrible things uh this sort of thing uh these are traumas that are I don't think they respect gender particularly and same for stress stress at work stress at home difficulty in family relationships financial stress health worries um etc etc negative emotions the same and habituation to go mode I think that's common um in both uh you know in all people I don't think it's particularly you know one thing maybe that men um some men might think about is um, sometimes when people talk about feeling in general, feeling emotion, feeling pleasure, whatever, or feeling pain, stoicism is vilified. And I think that's a mistake. So stoicism, I don't mean the philosophy, I mean the sense of being able to Uh, be unmoved or basically being able to put your emotions to the side and deal with the situation or to be in a a time of stress or conflict or difficulty and be able to rise above the emotions, um, to put them down, put them to the side, put them away, to operate from a position of of coolness. That ability sometimes that's seen as stoic you know oh things are going wrong there's some uncertainty what will happen next but this person is 
um, you can always depend on this person to be stoic. So then people often with their emotions come to such a person and say, um, I'm worried about this, I'm worried about that. And the person will listen and just their presence often is enough to be a relief. And they, they will give perspective, etc. So but sometimes it's not a communication of information that's going on. It's a kind of exchange of um, uncertainty with an emotionality with stoicism. So anyway, I think that's a really good trait. And, um, and it's a very attractive trait, it seems. So I think sometimes there is a mistake made, which is, oh, you men, you don't feel your emotions, which is not true. Men feel very profound, profoundly and very deeply. Um, you don't feel your, you don't talk about your emotions. Well, that's different to feeling them. You don't talk about them the way I want you to talk about them. Well, that's different to talking about them. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, um, so this sort of stoicism is sometimes vilified. So I think it's important to be able to shut off feelings, park your feelings in, in certain situations. It's also important to be able to access your feelings for to collect better data because your feelings tell you things or to be able to navigate better the situation. What do I want to do? What feels good? What doesn't feel good? And also for maintenance. If you pack all your feelings down all the time and as a, as a main strategy and you don't ever go in there and feel and clean it out, uh, then of course it's not good. This is, you're just packing stress and, and into your body. It's not good to do that. So it's important, I think for, so I think sometimes some men think that, um, connecting with feeling means um, relinquishing that capacity to uh, of stoicism. So I think it's important to have a, a balance of these things, you know, tough um, ability to put the emotions aside and so on when needed, but also to feel when needed. So it's a little bit, well, now we're back to go and flow in a way. Um, it's not one or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe that's something I, I'm kind of um, reaching here because I, I don't think there are a great many uh, challenges here that are gender specific. It depends culturally, maybe there's cultural feeling that uh, a sense that feeling is not manly. Yeah. Um, but yeah. then you see men at a football game expressing feeling or enjoying a beer and expressing feeling to use your two examples of beer and football. Well, that's not real feeling. That's fake feeling. Well, maybe, maybe it's fake feeling, but I think it's not, I think it's real feeling. So there are, are venues of, of X, X, uh, feeling. Yeah. I don't think it's a massive problem, um, specific to any subcategory of person. I think the dynamics are, um, somewhat applicable to all people. Well, it, that's great that where you are and your experience has been so like respectful for for men in in that sense. Because here in Mexico, uh, we still live in an awful macho culture, and for a man to to express pleasure that is not uh, an, a societally approved in a certain context pleasure then the poor guy is deemed as a gay and for some friends in the u.s even like people guys that are very aware of of their bodies uh, feldenkrais practitioners and martial artists like in their context it's like inappropriate as a guy as a man to to express pleasure to yeah like 
and by because expressing pleasure would not be like gay like it's here in mexico it's said with a worse word it said eres puto or eres maricón that is like 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 it that's an insult and in the these friends that i've talked with more or less on, on this tone the the term is cc so there's there's like a like a societal frame that bullies those men who express pleasure and so they don't express it like unless it's football and it's like a i i believe that it's true feeling and true pleasure but it's um a mannerism and an approved setup of the expression of pleasure and therefore um my opinion is that when pleasure like okay you can feel pleasure in a very steady quiet way but if you're not expressing through movement can be like i don't know like like this madonna wise or can be like maybe in i don't know in bruce lee wise or Mohammed Ali, that he was very expressive. Um, then there's a risk of repression. And yeah, so my inquiry was more in that tone, like how you deal with, mm. with these, um, this education on repressing your, your experiences specifically of pleasure because uh for example anger is here in mexico it's like okay for for men to get angry and red and express but if you get angry as a woman then you're a crazy witch like that um, <laughs> yeah. and about stoicism i believe that it's uh, also not non-gender related like for example uh the stoicism a woman should endure during childbirth or doing during menstrual cramps it's like okay you go to school you go to a presentation or you you tend to your family and you're like really giving birth to blood clots and like no one notices or <laughs> yeah. yeah that's a good example or being that's my point actually yeah, or, that's or, my or, point this is not specific to the whatever gender or, you are or being a ballet dancer and like having a toenail detached and and having a composure mm. or also being a boxer and having a composure i believe that that's important like as you mentioned as part of the self of the detangling of your of your self organization for self no towards self knowledge and better like synergy with the environment but when it's like a stoic and a deliberate composture and not repression yeah well everything has a disadvantage or a danger if you're uh, crossing the road you might get hit by a car if you um are stoic you might be repressed but if you're expressed you might be narcissistic so everything has a possible extreme um, that or a possible mistake or maybe sometimes several it's possible to become so absorbed with one's own feelings 
that one becomes sort of sub-functional, essentially, or a bit narcissistic, a bit self-involved, a little bit the world revolves around, around you. And so when it comes to men and the way they express pleasure, of course, the, the culture of Mexico, I cannot comment on that. You're the expert on that, being as you are in Mexico. I cannot comment on that. But as a general principle, rather than saying to men, you're, you're not doing it right, you shouldn't be, you, your, your football is a cultural um, uh, pretense or a cultural affectation. What you should do is move. You should move. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not sure about that. I mean, um, you should dance or you should, um, can, you know, do it. You're doing it wrong. Do it the way I do it. Well, yeah, maybe there's advantage in opening up the different ways in which one can express oneself and the different means by which one can connect with one's feelings or whatever singers were talking about feelings today. There's an advantage to having a range of them. Um, For sure, that's the case. But perhaps the movement, the way you feel to express pleasure is also just one way. If you can't bliss out at a football game, maybe your pleasure practice is limited um, in ways that are invisible um, because it's all about moving and this sort of particular way of feeling pleasure and describing where it is in the body. That's not pleasure. That's just, these are adjacent to pleasure. These are pleasure adjacent things. So perhaps the person in the football game has as much, if not more pleasure than the person who is sort of moving the body and describing all the nice things they feel. The point is, um, I like to start in a situation like that. Okay, if if a person comes to me and says, I want to connect more with my feelings, for example, I mean, I don't go around knocking on people's doors saying that they should do that. But if someone comes to me and says that, well, the first thing I would probably do is listen. Where in their life do they feel? Where in their life do they express their feelings? What are the things that already they feel deeply about or that they react to? And like I said before, it could be something like uh, having a nice beer at the end of the day or having a nice coffee in the morning or looking at the children or uh, et cetera, et cetera, listening to um, music or different things like that. Where is this person? Where are their doorways or gateways to feeling and pleasure specific to them and validating that and elevating that to an honorable uh, or uh, legitimate perhaps? way of being so then they begin to understand their own map of pleasure enjoyment their own feelings rather than learning the performance of feeling moving a certain way i'm definitely feeling describing sometimes we can take these behaviors on and we think we're doing something but we're actually ourselves still just performing the act of what looks like the real thing so i i I would start there listening to a person where do they feel? And it may not be where you think they should feel or where you're used to feeling. Or you might think, oh, you only feel like this. I cannot relate to that. You should learn to do it like me. Well, I mean, that's one way of doing it. But I prefer to, with an inquiry approach, what is this person's map rather than imposing my map? Mm-hmm. You know, Of course, my map is good for me. Their map is, is good for them. And there's a lot we can learn from each other. And there's a lot they can learn you know, from other ways. I'm not saying... It's totally about that, what that person, you know, already does. We can learn new things, but I like to start with what they already have and and go from there. 
And then they say, oh, I'm not so bad after all. I can feel after all. Now I, now I, now you ask me, it turns out I feel a lot of things and I express my feelings in all kinds of ways. I didn't even really think of it like that. Interesting. Now I'm more open to the idea. Now I understand how, who I am, you know, can connect to new ways of doing things. I think this is a nice trajectory. Yeah. I like a lot that, that way of, of the realization of the experience that was already going on. And that, that was the orientation of my question about uh, mainly pleasure. In talking not about pleasure as a feeling, like I am happy or not pleasure as an emotion, but pleasure like neurophysiologically as a sensation that you sense and experience through your senses in the same way that you experience pain. Like a paper cut is clearly pain and a ripe fruit is clearly pleasure. And that's like a, like a clear neurological guidance for survival for all animals and maybe plants too. So it's, it's great this, this image of, of getting in touch with with the map self mapping um, according to to the the person's terms and not leading to a, toward an imposition of a should an ought a must that can be as detrimental as what we've been speaking that leads to to repression no but like uh, self-realization. So would you tell us a little bit more about how can one map that experience of pleasure? Can you give us a little exercise? So, so, we, so we can have it on the flesh and not only on the discursive thinking. Mm. Well, mapping, um, you know, when I when I say that, what I'm I'm trying to say is that if, as as the as the if you want therapist or the person helping the other, um, I would I would want to begin to um, understand that person, and in that process of my discovering more about them by dialoguing with them, the chances are that they will also learn more about themselves. So because of course, sometimes you don't know, you think something or until someone asks you. So that dialoguing process can be very interesting. So I think that's what I meant there by, um, by mapping. So if you wanted to do that with somebody, I think you would simply you know, and the premise, of course, is that someone has come to me to discuss that topic or topics related to that. I don't know if I would cold call people with this sort of a thing. But um, uh, so if you do that, it's simply a case of being interested to understand their experience, not constantly always relating it back to your experience or constantly always relating it back to a method or a theory or a system that you've learned that is the way of doing things. So I think it's good to have your understanding of yourself and it's good to learn theories and systems and methods and so on. But when listening to somebody talking about their own 
thing, I think it's good to try to get into their world and understand them. That's actually one of the reasons I like to have my podcast, because I interview people and I enter their world for that period of time. I go into their world. It's so amazing and interesting. But in terms of feeling the body, well, actually, one of the best ways um, to feel the body is, as, um, is uh, something simple, like wriggling the fingers and toes oh, yeah. or waggling the eyebrows. <laughs> Yeah, wiggling the fingers and toes, because, for instance, in a, in a period of stress or um, fight or flight activation, um, it's very common to dissociate or at least become very tunnel vision like this. And that, that's necessary in certain situations like running away from a tiger or something. But um, what about when you're on a plane and there's a bump in turbulence and your adrenaline spike? So this sort of thing or you're in a conflict situation. Um, of uh, like arguing with somebody yeah, that you don't, you know, mm -hmm. are having an argument and you lose yourself and you can become a, sort of possessed by the patterns of the argument, etc., etc. Or you're anxious and worried about something, sitting in your house thinking about something that might be happening outside in the world or in your life, maybe it's coming. Um, there's some bad things happening and you're worried about that and you're stuck in those loops or stuck gripped somehow then a really nice thing to do is to wriggle the feet wriggle the toes and and sometimes the hands just opening and closing the hands something like this that brings the attention down into the body it prevents freeze it prevents or it can well not prevents maybe it it can interrupt freeze and thaw a little bit so it doesn't have to be a grand gesture. Sometimes in public or in a situation, it's not possible to make a grand gesture. So just wriggling the toes and so on. It's very interesting. One of the strategies that is used for um, talking from a therapeutic point of view, talking to somebody who's describing something very horrible or painful is, oh, it's so draining. It can be draining or very difficult to be involved with somebody's story like that. And especially if you have empathy, it can you one can become overwhelmed by empathy with the person it could be very hard so one of the tactics they have is to keep say 10 percent, five percent of your attention on one foot and the rest of it on the person why is that strategy the point of the strategy is not to lose contact with your own body with your own baseline so things like movements little movements wriggling the toes which can be done discreetly or deliberately not unconsciously wringing the hands but deliberately you know moving the fingers like this is really good and you showed some good movements too yeah stretching the arms if you can do that that's great you know going for a walk moving that's why people love yoga and stuff like that right because you move your body somehow it makes you feel better so i think any kind of movement whether it's wriggling like that yeah. your fingers and toes or walking yoga weight training whatever yeah. dancing yeah love it to change the state movement is excellent to change the state and to refresh the uh, inner experience it does not it's not a guarantee like i said uh, you know but it's one strategy that it can be quite useful loved the wiggly wiggling of the toes because you, you <laughs> don't, don't but don't make it like a sinister <laughs> against your aunt oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> or your boss <laughs> or yeah. in the supermarket <laughs> yeah that's a good point <laughs> but it's amazing Be, and 
it's it's so simple that is elegant because it immediately brings you to the flesh like you're already gone in the discursive paranoia blah 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 thinking and right and detaching from from your flesh and the flesh of the situation where you have to take action even for survival like if you're like exactly. even in a competition you need to be there with your whole self and when you're in therapy yeah you're you're empathic and you want to help the person but you won't be able to help the person if you're gone from from your um, yourself like the fullness of of yourself in your body uh having this anchor to the body that is pleasurable like wiggling the toes and the fingers is pleasurable so i like this a lot like using uh the connection to pleasure in the flesh as an anchor to yourself yeah and if you do it with one foot inside the shoe no one will notice love it steve tell us if you want three words that describe what you are sensing now three words that describe what i'm sensing now um maybe two words just happening just <laughs> happening great you feel just happening well if you add the now <laughs> then we have three just happening the time the time is not a, not a relevant factor i'd say just happening just happening love it thank you very much steve this has been an awesome episode tell us where can we find more about your doing how can we contact you thank you candy i've enjoyed it very much actually this has been so interesting and the questions you've asked and the discussions and that you're sharing of your expertise also i find it very stimulating so thank you for inviting me um yeah my website is guruviking.com g-u-r-u a guru viking v-i-k-i-n-g.com and also that's on instagram and so on but um guruviking.com on youtube guruviking.com and spotify or rather if you look for guru viking on youtube spotify soundcloud etc apple podcasts there you can see my podcast and if you go to guruviking.com there you can see all the different works that i do ways to um, learn things there on guruviking.com great amazing so go find steve james at guru viking everywhere you should be following him right now and also if you haven't already subscribed to the essential emails go to central there.com and subscribe so you can get these episodes delivered weekly to your email so thank you for watching see you next time and remember to sense your fire so you can share your flame.